want to encourage you to open in your Bibles to First uh, Thessalonians. We're in chapter 4. We've been making our way. We got, kind of got started again last week after a, a couple weeks of focusing on missions and, and doing all of that. I want you to know that there is the, the second installment of the Dynamics of Hope, just uh, three Bible studies that can uh, carry you, your family, maybe you and your spouse, maybe you and your small group, simple but profound questions that can shape the people of God as they review the sermon and the scriptures that we've had for the day, and, and also just a, a note of, of, of hope for us there on the, I think it's actually the 24th, it's not the 25th that the Dietrichs will be with us, and we can work with that. The compass of hope, let me just start off first and foremost, as you read through this scripture, it's not going to say anything about a compass in there, okay? So this is a, this is a pastoral privilege to, uh, to add to the scripture a metaphor or idea or a tool that can convey the idea. That I think what Paul is saying here is that there's four major compass points in, in, in my sense that help us to understand how hope really works in the individual life of the believer and in the greater life of the church. And so it's with that that I ask you a couple of questions this morning. And the first is this, how do you major your HQ? Of course, you're saying, what? What's, what's HQ? Well, if you drop down below that, HQ is your hope quotient. It's kind of like IQ, but it's a more of a biblical fashion. How do you measure whether you're hopeful or not? Now, our two go-tos, I want to get them out there, but, but only in a sense to help kind of debunk them for a moment. You see, some of us might say, well, I feel hopeful today. It's Sunday, I'm with all my friends or whatever. Others might say, I, I, I think I'm hopeful. And the problem with our feelings and the problems with our rational and our thinking capacity is that they're limited because we're fallen people. God made us with the ability, with so much ability to think and feel right. That that thinking and that feeling led our four, 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 four fathers and mothers, Adam and Eve, down the wrong path, and, and we've, we've inherited their folly. Think of it this way. I showed you this a few uh, 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 weeks ago, but just come back to it. See, if we're moved by our feelings and our thinking, what's going to happen ultimately, you may get some things right, but it's going to distort the facts. So feelings, facts, and faith is going to be last if it's used at all. However, if you start with faith, it will clarify the facts in your life. And then your feelings and your thinking can take it from there. See where I'm going with that? Uh, we often uh, are left with attempting the dynamics of hope uh, leaning on our own understanding, which is a dead end. So there are four compass points to any compass, and that's what we're going to talk about today. The first is 
The compass reveals our attitude, okay? So I, I want to talk to you a bit about attitude, and within that attitude is revealed our motive and our method. So you've got the fill in the blank, so you can relax a little bit if you're one of those kind of people, and just listen and write some extra notes. Paul opens chapter 4. Finally, brethren and sisters as well, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. Now, if I had one pencil left and I can underline two words in this part of the passage, it would be please God, okay? As in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of Jesus Christ. This is a weighty section of scripture. The authority of Jesus Christ has asked them to have an attitude that pleases God. By the way, that more and more, that's a, that's a good second choice. In, if you go down to verse 10, he uses that construct again. Anytime Paul uses a same construct within about 10 verses, that's serious that's Paul saying, get this, okay? Get, get a hold of this, right? Man, that's what he's wanting to do. So, um, obviously, but I'm going to have to say it anyway, obviously we are not to please ourselves or others. And yet this is a huge temptation for affluent and influential Christians in the Western world that have way more of everything than anyone else has. For all kinds of reasons, but let's leave it at that. We think that somehow pleasing ourselves or pleasing other people will be pleasing to God, and it's not. Setting that aside, pleasing God is simply that. It's pleasing God. And in the first century, there were two ways to please God. The first way was in the pagan religion. In the pagan religion, they were pleasing the gods for gain. They gave to get in order to earn spiritual points they sacrificed so that the gods would bring rain or that their crops would come up or their families or their livestock would be fertile. They lived under, I got to do this or God will cream us. We've got to make a sacrifice or the volcano gods will destroy our village. Okay? They were pleasing God with a gun to their head. And the first century understood this very, very clearly. In, in almost any place in the world where the Greco-Roman culture had come. And then, since then, we found out that in animistic religions and all those kinds of things, the same thing was true. We better take care of this or the gods will be angry. There's an eclipse said the Mayan priest. And if you don't bring me a bunch of stuff, then God's going to make the moon and the sun go away, and we're all going to be in trouble. And they, they jumped to that. The second way to please God was the emerging Christian way that Paul was teaching and living. And in Christianity, we were pleasing God to serve God. Out of thankfulness, out of devotion, out of worship, it was a want to. I've been saved by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
What can I do? Because I can't do anything to save myself. I'm already there. In fact, we're going to find out this, this morning, we can't do anything to become better Christians either. That's also God's gig. Not ours. And that's where the hope comes from. Because once you get saved by God, and then you think, now I've got to sanctify myself. You're underneath the tremendous load of stuff. And boy, aren't we having the joy of the Lord now. We've totally lost it again. But let's just stay with this point. You see, the want to is to find the joy of the Lord. So I've been having a lot of fun uh, this summer. Uh, this is 50 years since they landed on the moon. Oh, you been watching any of that stuff on TV about the, the moon stuff? About how it was almost like an accident that they got there. And then they landed there. And then, you know, and they were trying to land and they couldn't find the spot. And the guy goes, okay, I'm, I'm just going to take over and land this thing, you know. And they had nine seconds of, of fuel left. And they landed it, and then they had to push the button, the start button. Are we going to get off of this thing? Wow. You see, NASA experts call this the attitude of flight. Not the altitude, the attitude. And it is critical in order to get a man or a woman from here to the moon and back, or Mars, or, or even around, or even up into the atmosphere and back, is that second by second during the journey, everyone that's sitting in that big room in Houston is watching everything because every second is the next failure that its attitude adjustment has to be made. If they came into the moon too hot, they'd just ricochet off of it. We'd never see them again. If he'd used too much of that fuel, fuel he'd never got off the planet. You see, there's, there is an attitude. There is a method and a motive, one of growing teachability and closeness to God that only happens when you please God. Now take this as an admonition for a number of things besides pleasing God. What if for your spouse or your children, all you ever did was take care of them? All you ever did was, was just do the basics, and lots of the basics. But you never moved the dial of the relationship to seeing the joy on their face when you sacrificially pleased them. It'd be a dead relationship. They'd really want to go off to college. You know? Everything else would be altered if the attitude of pleasing and the attitude of teachability was not moved with every step along the way. How teachable are we? How much do we think we've already got it? We really don't need much from God. I went to church today, or I read my Bible. I know what it says there. I'm sure you do. But do you know what God wants you to do with what was said there? And it's that, it's that relationship of pleasing God. It's that attitude, that, that whole, you know, sci I love science applied to the, the spirituality because, you see, science is only revealing what God's always known. <laughs> Some science give God credit, most don't, but that's 
but it's still, it's a reality that tells us that there's something going on. The compass has to reveal what your real attitude is. Are you a pleasing God person? Are you trying to own God or show God you're there? or What's going on? Number two of the compass, it reveals our holiness. And, uh, and this is our, our, our position in Christ. We're going to get a big a seminary word here in this next verse. This is our sanctification, our being set aside, our being made whole and holy. And, 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 and yet I say it, perfect in Christ. Let me just read the first part of this and then we'll take the next part because uh, we're going to do something interesting with that. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Wow. It is God's will that you be in such a position in Christ that your holiness, it, it looks whole and blameless and righteous. These are words that Paul has used over and over again. None of these words speak to some kind of technical behavior. They speak of the heart. Two things about holiness. The first is we trust that God sees us like God sees Jesus. Holy, blameless. Because in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, everything that Adam and Eve undid, Jesus did. Pretty cool. I've heard people say, well, if I was in the Garden of Eden, I wouldn't have made that mistake. Well... Your choice is, are you going to move back? Everyone gets a choice. You're moving out or you're moving in. You're you're, you're taking that step. The second thing about sanctification is yielding our lives to a lifelong process that transforms the old by replacing it with the new. Paul talks about this again and again. Death to the old self so that the new self, and, and not, and, and not that, that we're there, but God's always finding old self stuff to cultivate and to bring up in order to replace the new self. It's pretty amazing. Let me say this. The holiness of Jesus has less to do with pious character traits of learned behavior that's approved by churches around the world. Sanctification has very little to do with that kind of piety, that kind of behavior. I mean, uh, you know, just, just watch America Got Talent for one night. Uh, you can train people to do an awful lot of goofy stuff. Training and imitation is, is, is pretty easy. A lot less to do with pious character traits, learned behavior approved by the church, but more to do with God' presence in the life being formed by a deep and abiding relationship. You see, we're going to find out this morning that it has a lot less to what we do and a lot more to who we are becoming. Yes, you're getting that. 
And I love this because it was so evident in the apostles. Remember those, those bumblers, the apostles? Can't walk on water, or they do, they blow that. Can't, can't feed 5,000 people. Everyone leaves Jesus. Uh, Peter denies him three times. This is, this is weeks. This is simply weeks after the, 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 not only the resurrection of Jesus, but his ascension into heaven. And they had arrested Peter and John for proclaiming Jesus, and they beat him up badly, and, and, and they were still acting like sanctified people. Now, now here, here's, one of the, here's one of the real keys to sanctification in, in our day and age. Christians have the idea sometimes today that if they push us, we're going to push back because we're right. Right? The early church said, doesn't matter what they do to them, we're going to treat them the way Jesus treated us when we messed up. There's a fascinating verse that talks about this in Acts. Just write it down. You don't want to have to turn there. Acts 4, verse 13. This is the Pharisees' understanding of the apostles about a, about a month or two into the Great Commission. When the Pharisees saw the courage, and by the way, courage is translated here, heart. You know, cardo or, or, or cardiology, courage, heart. When they saw the heart of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. I wonder, for myself, and I'll just invite you into my twisted fantasy here. How many people are thinking of me like Jesus? The way I wait in a supermarket line, drive my car, watch the news. What's going on? How could we be this trusting that God sees us as blameless and yielding in a lifelong process of teachability? So let's look at the rest of this uh, passage because it does say something to the Thessalonians and to us, but I think there's something more here that I want to get at. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control his own body. And I would underline that. Control our body. Because that's going to make sense here in just a minute. In a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the heathens. Who do not know God. And, and, and by the way. Uh, that's just. Again. Another one of those things we do isn't it. We don't really like to apply these passages to us. We want to apply them to the world. And the Bible wasn't written for the world. This is the manual for those who have already given their lives to Jesus. What a trap. We, we waste these verses on others when we should be applying them to ourselves. And in that matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins. As we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects instruction does not 
This instruction does not reject man, but rejects God who gives you the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to be the first uh, to always stand here and let you know that the church needs to hold to its high standard of marriage and our high standard of sexuality. In fact, this passage is written because in that day and age, there had not been a resourced standard of sexuality at that time. There had not been enough Christianity to tell people how things were going to go, and Judaism was still pretty low on the list. Most people, you, you had to go far and, and, and really get into Judaism before you even under, understood that they were, they were there. And so the standard was low, and if you take it even further, all of the converts that Paul is talking to here participated, they converted from a pagan cult that used human sexuality as part of its worship. So you see the importance here. They thought, they thought that was worshiping God in the Greco-Roman pagan temple. So I kind of scratched my head thinking, I haven't been up at chapel long, but I am realizing that we're not Thessalonians here. So we could just pass this and be on our way to point number three, or we could ask the, the, the deeper question, so what is our problem? So I just, James chapter three. Starting uh, in verse 2. And I'm going to read for quite a while here. And I'm just going to read this. I think it's, uh, I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's uh, conviction enough. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone never had a fault, he would say he is a perfect man. Able to keep his whole body in check. Remember that? Body in check. This is going to come back to us. When we put a bit into the mouth of horses, they will obey you. As we can turn the whole animal. Or take a ship, for example. Although they are large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder. Whenever the pilot, wherever the pilot wants to go. Now we hit pay dirt here. Likewise, the tongue. A small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by such a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a whirl of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire. This is what we talk about, okay? This is what we say about others when they're not in the room. And it and is itself a, the fire of hell. All kinds of animals, birds, and reptiles, creatures from the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise God the Father and with it we curse men who have been made by God. In God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. 
Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives and a grapevine figs? Neither can salt spring from fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, his deeds done in humility and comes from wisdom. But you who harbor bitter envy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or you deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly and unspiritual. It is of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder of every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. This is, this is our purity. Pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, who likes that word, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, sincere, peacemakers, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. We need to be more appalled at to what our tongues and our minds, even if our tongue hasn't caught it, is saying and thinking in this day and age as the, as the church, the holy church of Jesus. We've got to come to a purity. I, I'm, I'm even concerned that um, the, the ability to put our message out there on one of our devices has only led us into further travail in this area where we don't have to talk to anyone, we can just smash them with words. In the name of Jesus, perhaps, in our minds. But would Jesus talk that way? How would Jesus use his cell phone? And, and, and sometimes, why do we use devices when we should just sit down with someone and have a conversation like in the good old days? Perhaps we've dodged a conversation just by sending a quick text or an email. And all I'm saying, my brothers and sisters, is our sanctification is, is that process. Get that out. I'm encouraged. Read this verse last week and I'll read it again now. Being confident of this, that Jesus who began the good work of you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He will rid it out if we will yield it to him. Sanctification is trusting that what God did for us in Jesus is true, and it's believing that if we will yield every portion unto God, he will take care of the rest. So the compass points to our attitude, it points to our holiness, and it also points to the compass reveals our love. Now about brotherly love. We do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do, all the brothers throughout Macedonia. And we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. There's that more and more again, right? The compass reveals love, which is our identifying character. But it's not our character alone. God identifies God's self. By love, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, uh, well help me, 
and have everlasting life. What I was going for there is God the Father, the Son, and the ability to believe, which is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see, all of God is defined by that love. For God gave. God didn't smite the world. He gave the world His Son. And and this is the very definition of God, so it then becomes our very definition. Jesus said on the night when He was betrayed, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's how the Pharisees, it started getting in their minds, chapter 4. Do you know what happens in about chap- between chapters 6 and 9 to the Pharisees in the book of Acts? It says this beautiful statement. And then some of the Pharisees and the Sadducees started to turn to the way. Not because they did extraordinary things and built great big temples and huge parking lots and, and they, they had all the tech and, and they, they had everything going on. It was because not only was their God defined by love, but they defined themselves by love. The last point of the compass is that it reveals our testimony. And our testimony is our witness to outsiders. And if we're going to use the hardest part of the Bible to grow each other up and we can't use it to beat up the world, then what is the world supposed to get from us? What is the outsider supposed to get from the church? Here's what Paul says. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands just as we told you. So that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Not the black eye of outsiders. Nor they us. And so that you will not be dependent on anyone. Paul is on a jag here. If you turn to the last chapter of Colossians... Uh, I think it's chapter 4, verse 5. It says this. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Back to James here. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. This is beautiful here. Um, Three things about our testimony. Our testimony should be to live a quiet life. As Christians, we shouldn't be drawing attention to ourselves or, 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 or be spiritual show-offs. We should be actively involved as a people transforming our lives and becoming attractive to the world. You know, if we really believe that sin was a bad thing and that the love of God and the lives that we should have is a good thing, then if we focused on that and let the world have all the sin in the world, they're going to get tired. We've got the umbrella when they want to come out of the rain. But only if we use the umbrella to cover ourselves first and become an island for those that truly need our help and our compassion. Jesus would walk into a village and the disciples would say, 
Let's get out of here. This is crazy. Jesus would say, ah, with compassion, they are like sheep without a shepherd. Let's stay and be with them till they get what we have. Mind your own business. Change yourself, not others. We've taken on the habit of wanting to change others instead of ourselves. And, and, and what Paul is saying is we, we become full of so much more hope if we take this gospel and apply it to our lives and become that place. It also says here uh, at, at the end of all of that that work makes us responsible persons, responsible people. And we do all of this. Just highlight um, verse 12. So that your daily life will win the respect of outsiders. I like how he says daily. He doesn't say, so your churchly life. So your religious life. So that your so-called practices will win. No, no, your daily life. People believing that God's got it, no matter, I love that song this morning, that was amazing. Any season, down in the valley, wow, any season of daily, ordinary living, people are going, wow, those Christians are still having fun. They're still hopeful. One of the one of the things I love about prayer with the worship team before is someone will usually say, let's give them heaven. Yeah. Why not? That's pretty important stuff. By way of application, let me say this. Are we doing God's will in our daily living and doing or are we doing what we think and feel is best and we're asking God to bless that? If all we're doing, it's a good start, but if all we're doing is say, God, I'm really good at this, you bless that because that's all I want to do. It doesn't take any faith. You're already good at it. Do you see what, where, where this is going? That there's, there's this whole thing about being the people of God that is really filled with something other than what we already have nailed to the floor. It's good. What happens if we become a different kind of person, which brings me to the story of Jeremy, a very likable boy, but he was very, very odd. He was forever losing things. He'd come home and he didn't have a sweater that he wore to school. He had come home and he didn't have his backpack. One time he walked in the door barefoot. And his mom goes, Jeremy, where are your shoes? I don't know, mom. Just lost them today. He goes, I'll try harder. Tragically, this was early in his high school career. Tragically, at the end of his junior year, he died in a car wreck. And it was devastating. When his parents were, were talked into attending the school memorial, they were stunned to see hundreds of kids show up. One after another spoke of his kindness and the generosity of Jeremy. One boy told how his mother could not afford to buy him shoes. 
and how Jeremy took off his shoes and placed them on that kid's feet. A girl told of, of a, a winter without a jacket and, and a sweater that Jeremy gave to her. And on and on, the students stepped forward, paying tribute to this young, quiet conductor of kindness and hope and everything about the life of Jesus to high schoolers. His parents were undone. The students' hearts were softened. Jeremy, at such a young age, was an anonymous seed sowing the gospel of Jesus Christ. In some strange way, everyone who had been given something by Jeremy now shared a special friendship with him and some kind of relationship with God yet to be further defined. They looked around at each other like distant relatives with quiet eagerness to get to know each other better. So I want to ask the question of the four compass points. What if our attitude was of such gratitude and teachability and obedience that our, it led to a continuous, outrageous acts of selfless faith on behalf of those who could never merit it or pay, it, pay us back? What if that was our attitude? What if our holiness set us apart from the world of sin in such a way that we became an invitation to that same world to come to Jesus? That we were like Jesus instead of like the Pharisees? What if our love was the only thing that people could see in our eyes when they were with us? What if our testimony was our lives and not our lips? 